The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, we have a great show tonight. Uh, we sure do. You didn't even really warm up to this one. You didn't give me time to adjust to your energy. But yeah, we, we sure do, Matt. Uh, of course, tonight on the show, we are talking about H. pylori. Our guest is Dr. George Safori. And Paul, before we get to talking about our guest, can you tell the audience, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. We are, as a reminder, the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And tonight, uh, we discussed all things H. pylori with the great uh, Dr. George Safori. I think before we get into hearing about Dr. Safori, I should also introduce our the person who does everything, who's not us um, at this point, is is Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Beth, how are you? Doing well. Happy to be here. Beth, did you want to set this up? And I, I believe we have a clip to play before we get to the guest bio. Yeah, this episode was actually pitched to us by a listener. Um, it's been kind of a long process. We did this episode pitch contest, uh, I think it's more than half a year ago at this point. Um, and uh, we're hoping to do one again. Maybe we'll do it once a year, once every two years. <laughs> Sometimes episode production could take a while. Um, but uh, this was pitched to us by a listener, and we had the opportunity to speak with her. Um, so here's just a little snippet of that conversation where you can meet uh, this wonderful person who pitched this. I am joined by our winner for our episode contest that we had for the Curbsiders, Anna. Um, she'll just uh, introduce herself in a second. Um, we're really excited to have this episode air. Um, and here's Anna. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Ana Maria Kalhauer. I'm a Guatemala medical student in year six, and I'm very excited to be joining the Curbsiders for this episode. Yeah, we're super excited. Um, what inspired this pitch? It obviously won our episode contest poll on Twitter, so it resonated with a lot of our listeners. So what were what, what inspired it? We'd love to hear your story behind it. So when I came across the announcement on the website, I was reading the episode notes for for an episode, and I thought of Helicobacter pylori, if I'm pronouncing it right in, in English, because it's such a common chronic infection, and especially in developing countries such as mine, we see it very often, and I have seen in my personal experience a lot of aspects of the management can be overlooked. For example, the testing for eradication after you're done with treatment, and in my country, it, it's a very difficult thing. We we have over-the-counter combination regimens for Helicobacter pylori, which people like consume as if it were, I don't know, ibuprofen or whatever. So this is an aspect that is very difficult in my country. So I wanted to propose this episode because I think many uh, people involved in primary care like myself would benefit from learning from the experts in this topic. Absolutely. And we felt that way too. Um, out of curiosity, how did you discover the curbsiders? So last year, uh, when the pandemic started, we my clinical rotations were interrupted. So I was looking for ways to invest my time and discovering new resources. And I came across your podcast. And I listened. The first episode I listened to was by Dr. Eve Bloomgarden uh, on hyperthyroidism, and I was so 
like surprised by her teaching of how to palpate the thyroid with the thumbs, which was one thing I had never been taught. And then I had been hooked on listening to you guys and all the clinical pearls and insights from experts you really can't get anywhere, anywhere else. Thank you guys for always producing great content and free medical education content for the whole world. All right, and now let me introduce our guest, Dr. George Safori. He is an associate program director for the UC Riverside GI Fellowship. He completed residency and fellowship at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where he developed an aversion to extreme cold and an affinity for friendliness with some passive aggressiveness sprinkled in for good measure. He is passionate about GI education, IBD, and C. diff, and he tries his best to care for slash put out metaphoric fires by his two toddlers. Also, he is an extremely enthusiastic yet average gamer. Now with all that, let's get to the interview. I tried to look up puns for this one, but everything was really basic. I'll allow it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, actually, I, I just, I feel like H. pylori with George Sephori just sitting right there the entire time. <laughs> like it just rolls right off the tongue and we just did not avail ourselves of a single opportunity. <laughs> Well, George, thank you so much for joining us. Please start us off by giving the audience a one-liner about yourself and throw in a hobby or interest outside of medicine. All right. Uh, thank you, Matt or Watto or Matt Watto. Um, uh, my name is George Safori. Um, <laughs> I am a um, pseudo or semi-academic gastroenterologist. Um, I work in a hybrid model, private practice, and also as the fellowship uh, APD for the UCR GI Fellowship. Um, so kind of a dual role there. I'm a father to two amazing toddlers. They are lovely and mischievous. Um, I'm a husband to a wonderful, much smarter than me wife. Uh, she's an ophthalmologist. Um, and I'm happy to be here. Um, I think the only interesting thing about me is that I don't know if it's interesting, but I uh, am a self-professed, uh, video game enthusiast, even though I am also extremely average at video games. Well, this just teased me up for the, the follow-up question, clearly, because usually I like to ask about some piece of pop culture, but instead I will ask, so what, what are you playing? What video games have you so enjoyed I, recently? I, I have really enjoyed two games over the last few years. Um, Horizon Zero Dawn is phenomenal. God of War is phenomenal. But my primary game I play is Destiny 2. I am a part of a clan. We call ourselves Septic Prime. This is because this is probably way too much. I'm really sorry, but this is okay. So I'm part of a clan with no, with a bunch of my this is, this is exactly with a bunch of my former co-residents, and uh -huh. we're all like pretty much all physicians. And um, there's like this encounter where you have to fight this person whose name is Sepix Prime. And at the time, I would think I was a second year fellow, and we decided we would name this. Person, this alien actually septic prime and we would fight it with early goal directed therapy and that was like a massive <laughs> joke we all got a huge kick out of that in retrospect very quickly realizing it was extremely lame but um that stuck so that's our clan name and i play as much as i can which means whenever my wife and kids let me um but it's like the thing that keeps me going besides like you know treating gi diseases <laughs> <laughs> I think you've endeared yourself to a huge swath of our audience. So like I think you're I think you're in fine shape. Fall, would you care to give a pick of the week before we get on to the main topic? Yeah, sure. I'll I'll throw a quick one out there. Are you familiar with the band Shudder to Think? No. You might be too young for them. <laughs> um 
they they they're like they're a mid '90s band. I feel like the only feedback I get on my picks of the week are bands or, or albums that I recommend. So I'm going to throw out the the band Shudder to Think, their 1994 album, the Pony Express record. They are uh, categorized as post hardcore, but they have some glam elements to them. They they have uh, they take these wild sort of tonal swings. The the singer has this amazing crazy vibrato. They do stuff that sounds almost orchestral at times and mathematical at others. Like they're just. They're all over the place, but also always really interesting and compelling to listen to. So I am going to recommend Pony Express Record by the band Shudder to Think. And that came out in 1994 for most of our audience before they were born, probably. Beth, what's your pick of the week? My pick of the week is Insecure on HBO. It's um, a show that recently finished its final season. Um, and I had been like a season or two behind because of the pandemic. It's it's just a really nice show about friendship and relationships and like navigating your late 20s, early 30s. I know that's probably not in everyone's sort of uh, favorite genre, but for me it is. And I, I just really liked it. It's a really like nice portrayal of uh, friendship. I want to recommend a podcast called Wisdom from the Top with Guy Raz, who used to host TED Radio Hour and hosts How I Built This. And this is where he's talking with various leaders from various different backgrounds about things. The most recent episode I listened to was the author of the book Radical Candor. I can't remember her full name, but it was it was just a good interview, had some very good discussion of how to give feedback in a meaningful way, which I think I can always learn more about how to give feedback, especially difficult feedback. So that is Wisdom from the Top. And check that out on whatever podcast app you're using. Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial, the national bank for doctors by doctors. Speaking as a physician, the average bank isn't built for our community. They see our debt levels or limited credit history as red flags. At Panacea Financial, they get it because they have lived it. As a bank founded by two physicians, they are dedicated to providing solutions for the unique needs of doctors and doctors in training, including their PRN personal loan. Do you have a good way to cover the cost of moving for residency, fellowship, or even becoming an attending? Do you want to avoid credit cards or refinance existing and expensive credit card debt? Then check out their PRN personal loan as a way to help. It has a period of no or low affordable payments, no co-signer requirement, and low fixed interest rates that don't depend on your credit score. Even if you don't need any of Panacea's doctor-specific loans that also include student loan refinancing or practice buy-in loans, you can refer a friend, and Panacea Financial will pay up to $250 for each referral. And there is no limit to how many people you can refer. Join the growing number of doctors nationwide that expect more from their bank and have switched to Panacea Financial. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how a bank for doctors by doctors can help you. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well. But how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. So for instance, for me, it's important that I make time to go for runs um, a couple times a week even though I hate it while I'm doing it and I think that a runner's high is a fiction created by sneaker companies, when I'm done, I feel better about myself and better about my own health. So for you, whether it's hitting the gym, making time for a run, making time for a haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset. So invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. We live in overstimulating and isolating times, and I think sometimes we need a little bit of extra help to keep our thoughts and our emotions in order, and sometimes therapy is the thing that we need to do that. 
BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Curbsiders listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com curb. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash curb. So with that, let's get to a case from Cashlack. Beth, did you want to start us off? Absolutely. So we have a patient named Laura. She's a 54-year-old female, and she's coming to your office complaining of some intermittent um, but increasingly symptomatic abdominal pain. She's kind of feeling it in the epigastrium region, uh, usually a few hours after eating. She's been taking some antacids with a little bit of relief, although she's become more and more reliant on them. And she's also reporting some belching, some feeling gassy and bloated. Um, her medical history is notable only for some osteoarthritis of the joints for which she's taking NSAIDs, in quotes, occasionally. So this is the kind of patient that um, may get, get a diagnosis of gastritis. And we, we're just curious, how. what do you think of that? <laughs> we may be giving away a little bit with the title of the episode what this patient may have, but start us off with a broad view. Yeah. Um, so so gastritis. So that's a good, good place to start. Um, it's a little bit of a controversial word, mainly because, you know, I don't like it. Um, so it's it's a bit of a catch-all <laughs> term. Um, gastritis technically is a histopathologic diagnosis. So you have to have a biopsy, you have to have a pathologist look at it, and they have to see, you know, inflammatory cell infiltrates to make the diagnosis. Most people use gastritis in a symptomatic fashion. So I have epigastric pain, I have some postprandial distress, things like that. And that's how a lot of uh, providers and a lot of patients uh, use the term. It's not particularly helpful because it doesn't really have much of a bearing on what you're going to do workup-wise or management-wise thereafter. So I don't tend to use it very often unless I actually have a biopsy and I can kind of use that to guide my you know, decision-making. Um, if, if at all. Um, so, so I guess I would characterize this patient as having, you know, I would actually just kind of, kind of give it as it is. It's epigastric pain. Um, you know, it appears to be somewhat related to meals perhaps. Um, and she has these associated symptoms of, of feeling gassy, feeling bloated. So it's, it's a very wide kind of differential at this juncture. I would definitely want to ask about red flag GI symptoms such as over GI bleeding or unintentional weight loss. And when she mentioned she takes NSAIDs, I want to delve into that further and really kind of ask her, you know, exactly which NSAIDs, how often, and how long you've been taking them for to really kind of get to the heart of that. Because NSAID use occasionally means different things for different people, of course. And the other thing of note for this case, I think, is the patient's age. So she's uh, relatively young. Um, she's less than 60 years old, which is important from a management standpoint. Um, so I think I would kind of start with that. And for me, if I had to pick a catch-all term to describe what's going on with her, it appears to me like she has dyspepsia. Um, and so that's kind of the term I would probably use if I was giving this in a presentation to some attending somewhere who needed to know what's going on. Paul, so you would never write gastritis in your note, but uh, you've seen on biopsy. Have you ever seen a biopsy that didn't say gastritis, Paul? I <laughs> no, uh, no. I, 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 we were talking a little bit before. I every biopsy report seems to come back with this sort of chronic low grade gastritis. I never quite know what to do with that. 
And now I have you here as an expert. Tell me what to do with that. <laughs> yeah, not much. Um, so the, <laughs> you don't, okay, you don't so have to answer I that. I think like a bit of a side, the, the endoscopic or maybe GI specific kind of corollary to this is that gastroenterologists will frequently call any vaguely abnormal gastric looking mucosa gastritis. So if I go in with an upper endoscopy and I see that the mucosa appears erythematous or mildly erosive or atrophic or what have you, I will almost assuredly label that as gastritis in my report. And I will almost assuredly take biopsies looking for things like H. pylori infection. So uh, endoscopists are not very good or specific about classifying this. And again, the, you know, the follow-up relevance of how you would describe or classify that is usually not that important either. Um, so for me, if I'm doing an endoscopy, I find gastritis visually or grossly, I'll take biopsies and hope that it's confirmed on histopathology and kind of go from there. Um, and we have different ways of, you know, characterizing what gastritis might, might look like. And again, the clinical relevance of that is just not that clear. Um, so that's kind of how I would conceptualize gastritis, at least from an endoscopy standpoint. Can I, can I walk us back for just a second? I think, um, and I, I've been guilty of this as well, but I think something that I've seen in just sort of outpatient primary care is a patient comes in with, with maybe symptoms of dyspepsia or sort of vague gastrointestinal symptoms. And that the move almost even before you have a framework is to maybe throw a proton pump inhibitor at it and kind of hope for the best. It's almost like your Hail Mary passed. If that doesn't work, then off to gastroenterology for upper endoscopy seems to be, uh, if it was an up-to-date algorithm, maybe like two steps. Um, so I, I guess you, you mentioned some things. I guess what I where I'm going with all this is if you could just sort of talk us through who are the patients that would probably most benefit from upper endoscopy. So you mentioned some red flags and some things that would be concerning, but is there anything else that we should be thinking about that almost sooner rather than later we should get someone to see you if they're having these sort of abdominal symptoms? Yeah. Um, so I guess it's a little bit hard because a lot of people, I mean, GIs included, myself included, throw or kind of um, lump together upper gut symptoms as sort of like one group of disorders. And that's because, I mean, you're not wrong, Paul, like a lot of a lot of doctors and gastroenterologists will just throw a PPI at patients and hope it sticks. And I mean, it kind of works pretty well. So like, why not do that? Um, <laughs> right. So I guess for me, I try and distinguish, you know, dyspepsia, which, which is, which is essentially defined as, you know, uh, epigastric pain or burning or postprandial kind of fullness, early satiation, that sort of thing. Um, from the other kind of bigger upper gut symptom, which is what we think about as GERS, so that's typically heartburn and regurgitation. And, you know, both are frequently treated with PPIs. So kind of why not go that approach? And for dyspepsia, the main reason is you want to actually look for and treat H. pylori first before you throw a PPI at that patient. I, I will just say the data on that are not particularly strong. In fact, there are uh, there you could actually, in theory, go straight to a PPI if you actually read the actual literature cited in the guidelines. Um, but all the guidelines universally recommend checking for H. pylori first, uh, for good reason, I think. Yeah, this is, I guess this is the point that obviously, given the name of the episode, I was kind of hoping to get to. So you mentioned H. pylori testing for dyspepsia is a reasonable thing to think about. Um, I, I guess. Since that is the theme of the episode, and this is what we're trying to get, can you talk us about other other situations where you might start thinking about testing for H. pylori? And then obviously, we'll spend a lot of time talking about what those tests might look like. 
Yeah. So um, like you like you highlighted, Paul, dyspepsia is the most common reason we're going to be testing for H. pylori. Um, and that's usually, usually using the age cutoff of 60 years per the guidelines uh, to determine what kind of test you're doing. A lot of people uh, somewhat incorrectly think that if you're under 60, you test for H. pylori. If you're over 60, you just do an upper endoscopy to look for things. But part of the reason you're doing the upper endoscopy, besides looking for things, which is usually gastric cancer uh, or some other disorder that's over it in front of you, is to actually test for H. pylori endoscopically with a biopsy. So in both situations, you're getting to H. pylori testing irrespective of the age. Um, so dyspepsia is probably the most important and most common one, I think. Um, there are a few others. Um, patients who have a history of peptic ulcer disease uh, or have you know peptic ulcer disease in front of you, let's say in the hospital, all should be tested for H. pylori infection. Um, there's some evidence that if you're going to be on long-term uh, aspirin or chronic NSAIDs to be tested uh, for H. pylori before starting that, to have that eradicated to prevent subsequent peptic ulcer disease and bleeding from that. There's some uh, controversy about uh, family history of gastric cancer, which uh, can be a consideration as to when you might test a patient and treat them if positive, if you have a first-degree relative who has a history of gastric cancer. Um, certainly, if you do have gastric cancer, or uh, which is adenocarcinoma, or the other type of gastric cancer we commonly think about, which is the so-called malt lymphoma, I know it's got a new name, but that's what I always call it, um, you, you definitely want to be treating, uh, looking for and treating H. pylori. Uh, because it is uh, an, a linked uh, organism. It's a causative organism. And uh, one of my favorite teaching points for the residents and fellows is that since the early 90s, H. pylori has been classified as a carcinogen by the uh, World Health Organization. And so it is a clear causal link for cancer, specifically gastric cancer, and that should not be overlooked. I was reading about how in Japan, they, when they instituted testing for it, they've actually been able to show reduction in gastric cancer by starting to test and treat for, for H. pylori. So I know I was surprised, frankly, at how the link is, how strong it is that, that they can show that if you test and if you treat for it, that you can actually decrease the incidence of seams gastric cancer and recurrent ulcers and all sorts of things like that when I was never that I had never really looked that deep into the evidence and seeing how strongly linked the treatment is to some of these outcomes. Yeah, that's partly because gastric cancer is relatively uncommon in the United States. Um, so worldwide, it's like a top five cancer, you know, uh, in terms of prevalence and also in terms of um, I'm sorry, incidents and also in terms of cancer related death. And the majority of those cases, over half of them, come from East Asia. Um, so, you know, comparatively in the United States, we don't have that much gastric cancer. So it's far less on the radar compared to countries like China, Japan, and Korea. Yeah, that's something that's always stood out to me, like during my medical school education related to H. pylori is just how prevalent it is globally. And I actually was really surprised by the Houston uh, consensus guidelines that kind of mentioned you know, having a much uh, lower barrier for wanting to screen for H. pylori and folks who are first-generation immigrants from countries that are, are, you know, very prevalent for this. Is, is that something that you've, you, you do in your practice and recommend folks to be more attuned to? You know, it's, it's an interesting question, Beth. I, I actually, I do now, as a rule, uh, try to screen for it far more than I did in fellowship and far more than I did based on my initial read of the literature. And that's a little bit, it's, it's not categorically guideline driven, I would say, from that standpoint. But um, clearly, the uh, prevalence of H. pylori is greater in certain populations in the United States. So like overall, 
I think we're sitting at about 35% or so, you know, compared to other countries, it's a lot lower. But if you look at certain ethnicities, then it's higher than that, even closer to 50 plus percent. And that could be, for example, your Hispanic population, African American population. In the uh, native Alaskan population, it's like 75% or something like that. So it's very high. Um, so if, and so I think it, it sort of, it behooves us as, you know, taking the patient in front of us, you know, treating them as an individual, understanding their individual risk as best you can to see if it's worthwhile to do this. You know, part of the reason it's not implemented in the United States widely, again, besides the the prevalence of gastric cancer being low, is that we just don't have enough data from here. And again, that's probably partly related to the prevalence being low. Um, but, you know, we don't know if it's cost effective. Uh, we don't know if it's something that should be implemented nationwide. And so, you know, far less robust compared to a lot of the Asian countries and a lot of the Asian literature. And I should just point out that the the groups that you were mentioning that that from my reading, a lot of the transmission of H. pylori among families is related to chronic uh, cramped living conditions. And it can be just sort of a marker of social determinants of health as to why certain groups who are disadvantaged due to things like systemic racism, why it may be more common in those groups because they're more likely to have cramped living conditions where it can spread more easily. So we're just pointing that out, not necessarily that this is any sort of genetic genetic basis to this. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, we know that there are certain risk factors to H. pylori infection. Um, those things you mentioned are all uh, are widely established at this point. Um, I will also point out that uh, the vast majority of H. pylori is contracted in childhood. And so uh, it's not like, let's say, you have these risk factors and you somehow, you know, come into, you know, you kind of elevate your socioeconomic status, so to speak, or you come out of that sort of lower socioeconomic status, and then all of a sudden you're you're clear because um, H. pylori is essentially a childhood contracted uh, infection. And so that's why addressing those things, you know, is so important in dealing with this. And it, I would say it's, you know, I don't know if you call it a crisis, you know, we're like living in a pandemic right now. So I guess like that's kind of like other infections are like less important, but, <laughs> but definitely, definitely H. pylori is an important pathogen, important infectious disease. And I think that it, you know, it, it's, it's extremely important for us to, to address it and treat it. Do you think, and I'm not sure, you may not know the answer to this, but do you think we're underdiagnosing it? I, the sense that I get, and I think we talked about this on our dyspepsia episode, is GERD, people have a fairly well-defined idea of what that is, and then someone may come in with either the, the postprandial fullness or the, the postprandial pain that classically fits dyspepsia, but I just don't hear that word come up. And if you're not thinking that word, I feel like then you're not thinking H. pylori testing, and as a result, you're kind of fussing around the periphery. So I guess, again, my long-winded question is, do you think that we're, we're missing a lot of this? I think it's certainly possible. Um, I think a lot of gastroenterologists, or at least I guess I can speak for myself, but I, when I hear symptoms related to epigastric pain, you know, postprandial fullness, that sort of thing, even if I think there's something else contributing to that, such as constipation, for example, a big one to ask about, or someone taking NSAIDs, for example, I will almost always go to H. pylori testing. And part of that's my bias because I, I actually work in a population where I'm, I, I treat a lot of Hispanic patients. I treat a lot of patients uh, from lower socioeconomic status. And so I know it's very common in my patient population. But I also think that, you know, it's something that, again, we need to we need to find, we need to treat in a lot of instances. And dyspepsia for me is the big one to to kind of root out and and find those cases and treat them. I guess I'll just go back and say that there are a few other indications for which you might test and treat for H. pylori. 
They're not the strongest per se, but they are kind of some interesting ones to think about. Um, one would be ITP, which is something that's uh, put forth by the Hematology Society guidelines as well. Um, so H. pylori seems to be H. pylori infection seems to be associated with uh, thrombocytopenia. And the mechanism for that's kind of a little bit unclear, but it's kind of interesting. Um, and then there are a few others like iron deficiency anemia, um, which you might want to test for. That was put forth and uh, supported by the most recent AGA guidelines on iron deficiency anemia, which came out a couple years ago. Um, and then um, I think that the I think those are the main ones I could think of, at least at this point. Um, there's kind of a specific one that's, again, a little bit less applicable to the United States where you actually want to uh, test and treat when you're endoscopically removing an early gastric cancer um, because uh, eradication of H. pylori in that situation uh, seems to reduce the likelihood of uh, metachronous lesion. I always get intrigued when I see when I'm reading that we don't know the reason for something. So when I saw that ITP H. pylori connection, I thought that was fascinating and like intrigued. Not that I'm going to go out and do bench research to figure out why, but I'm curious, you know, what what are what is the current standing of what that pathophysiology might be? Um, I, I mean, you can't see me do this probably, but like I'm, I'm, I'm waving my hands because it's kind of hand wavy, I think, uh, <laughs> which means it's either cytokines or it's, I mean, I don't know. Like, so the, one of the, I one love of the cytok- <laughs> cytokines are always the answer. Cytokine. You have to say cytokines with jazz hands though. So you, one of the, one of the mechanisms I believe is molecular mimicry. And so, um, H pylori antigens look a little bit like platelet antigens. And so, um, you know, the spleen kind of, you know, chomps up the platelets as a result. H. pylori itself may sort of rev up the immune system, and uh, that can give you the thrombocytopenia, I suppose, uh, in that sense. So those are my like very basic understandings of that mechanism. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the strongest causal link, uh, but certainly it's recommended in like the GI guidelines, and then I, I believe also the hematology guidelines. So if you see it, again, just get rid of it. Anecdotally, our guest in our when we we talked about an abnormal CBC and thrombocytopenia, and Dr. Quack, Dr. Mary Quack said that she she does treat H. pylori, but she goes, I I don't know that I've really seen it work to raise the platelets, <laughs> but she'll treat it if someone has immune thrombocytopenia. So I I just wanted to recap the list for the audience for indications for testing. So we said there's peptic ulcer disease, there's the malt lymphoma, gastric cancer with early resection. If someone has unexplained iron deficiency, if someone has immune thrombocytopenia, if they have functional dyspepsia and they're under 60, you can do some testing. If they have functional dyspepsia and they're over 60, they're going to get an EGD and you'll still test for uh, for H. pylori with the biopsy. And then if patients are on long-term aspirin or NSAIDs, those are other patients you might consider testing. Paul, are you t- are you did a good job to testing all your patients on aspirin and NSAIDs long term? That that might be a big oh, list. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, serology though. I mean, I'll just do it with the blood work, the, and I think the, we should be okay. <laughs> okay, Ooh, I, and I Paul's triggered. joking there. So we'll, am, okay, okay, let's okay, get okay, into right, the yeah. testing, Paul. <laughs> Paul, that is a great, Paul, that was a great, I don't, so we have this thing on the show, George, which might potentially be confusing to the audience where Paul and I say things we know is wrong to trigger the other person. So I see that you're playing into this with us, which is great. So yes, George, what yes. testing should we be jumping to now that we're talking about testing? Paul mentioned serologies. Certainly he is wrong. <laughs> yeah. So serologies are kind of, kind of taboo. H. pylori serologies are kind of taboo now in the GI world. Um, it's they're not like the worst test in the world. It's just that there are better tests. And so if you're going to do a test, make sure it's a good one. So the most common serology you'd see is IgG, 
um, several problems with it. It you know doesn't reliably distinguish between active and, and previous infection. Um, the sensitivity and specificity overall is not great, um, and so it, it's actually it's really fallen by the wayside um, as far as you know the type of test you can do. It does happen to be the only test that I'm aware of that is not affected by um, you know H. pylori treatment regimens. Um, so there is that for it, uh, but essentially it's it's never really done. I, I've never ordered H. pylori serologies in my entire life. All I've done is like get them from referring providers sometimes, and then I just kind of like yell into the night. Um, but so so I, I would not I would not do <laughs> H. pylori serologies. Okay, so what would what tests should people be ordering? Right. So if you want a non-invasive test, the two best options are either the urea breath test or the H. pylori stool antigen. And so, because again, I'm usually testing people who are referred for dyspepsia, uh, who are less than 60. These are the tests that will commonly order. Um, Either are fine. They're both very good. Uh, They have high sensitivities and specificities, 90 plus, 95-ish percent uh, for both. So they're both very reliable. So I I like both those tests. The, uh, The best way to test endoscopically is to take a biopsy, of course. And actually, there are two options there. Which one of which is most commonly done in the states, which is to send for histopathologic assessment. Uh, but actually, there's another way you can test for it via biopsy, which I think was more popular back in the day, where you would actually do um, you have like these rapid urea tests you can do, where you take the biopsy sample, you stick it in this little like colored gel, and that has like a um, uh, a sensor for urease, and so then it will change color based on whether or not there's H. pylori, i.e. urease positive or not. And I'm like pretty sure this was done back in the day a lot more. It is actually more cost effective compared to sending it to a lab. Uh, But the reason I think it was done back in the day is because my dad is also a gastroenterologist. And I like distinctly remember like getting picked up from school, opening up his car trunk for whatever reason, and seeing a bunch of those tests there and not knowing what it was, thinking they were kind of like a little toy or candy or something. (laughs) And then like him just like, you know, swatting it out of my hand. So it definitely was done back in the day and it's not really done that much anymore. All right. This episode is sponsored by Squarespace. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace is an all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. So let's say you wanted to make a website celebrating Paul Williams as a national treasure. Let's call it paulwilliamsnationaltreasure.com. Well, Squarespace is going to make it easy for you to make a beautiful website. And maybe you want to start a blog talking about Paul and how awesome he is, all his picks of the week. Well, They give you great blogging tools and they make it easy to share on social with configurable sharing buttons. Plus, you can grow and engage your Paul Williams fan base with Squarespace email campaigns. And Squarespace is also going to give you powerful analytics that are going to tell you just who's visiting your Paul Williams National Treasure site and how they're interacting with your content with their in-depth website analytics tools. What are you waiting for? Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash curb. That's squarespace.com slash curb to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode is sponsored by Indeed. Audience, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. And let me tell you, I recently got to use the Indeed website for some hiring that we were doing at Curbsiders, and it was a fantastic experience. 
and we were almost overwhelmed with applications. Indeed made it easy every step of the way to attract, interview, and hire all in one place. We got so many quality applicants, and we made sure that they met our must-have requirements. Otherwise, we said, hey, Indeed, this person doesn't meet our requirements, and they would send us more applicants. It was great, and we only paid for the quality applications that met our must-have requirements. So instead of spending hours on multiple job sites, all we needed was this one powerful hiring partner, Indeed. So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash internal medicine. The offer is valid through March 31st. Go to indeed.com slash internal medicine to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. That's indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, the question that people always have about testing is, what what do I do? My patient has dyspepsia, they're on a PPI, and I wanna test them for H. pylori with either a stool antigen or a breath test. So what are, what do you do to bridge that person and like what can they be on when they're tested and what shouldn't they and how long do you wait once they're off a PPI yeah so a good rule of thumb is a month um th- there are some rcts suggesting you can be off things for a little bit less than that but i think a month is a good a good number uh and so i will tell my patients to be off ppis for 4 weeks antibiotics if possible to also be off of those for 4 weeks um and probably H2 receptor antagonists as well. It's mixed in the literature as to whether that actually affects the test performance, but um, by and large, I try and have patients stop that too. And so once they've been off of that, then I'll you know send them to the lab for, again, the stool engine and the breath test. And then once they finish that test, they can go right back on the PPI if they need to, what have you. Yeah, because I, I had read... I can't remember, one of the review articles was saying that they, is this controversial about the H2 receptor antagonist? Because one of the review articles was saying that's a good choice to put someone on while you're withholding the PPI. So if is it controversial? And then what do you do instead? Right. So it, it's controversial just in the sense that the literature is mixed. Um, so for me, I, I will pr- pretty much always tell patients just to stop it because on the off chance the studies that showed it actually affects test performance are the truth, then then I don't want that to you know mess up my test. So I'll usually have patients stop them. Um, if they cannot live without it, then I'm not gonna you know just you know begrudge them that. So that's fine. Um, if they need to be on anything that you know to treat whatever upper gut symptom we're talking about here, whether it's their you know dyspepsia or GERD, and they you know they want to take something like antacids, then that that's probably reasonable and that should not affect the test performance. Um, so if they need to be on something, then, you know, perhaps, you know, like a Tums or, or, or something like that would be fine. Um, but most patients don't benefit from very much from those anyway. So in some of the, we were talking about with celiac, we, we sometimes do serologic testing. We do a biopsy to confirm with H. pylori. If you're, if someone has dyspepsia and you do the stool antigen or the urea breath test and assuming that they were off a PPI for a month ahead of time. If that's negative, are you pretty much done there? Or do sometimes people still end up getting biopsy and still sending for H. pylori to see? Is there is there a discordance between the two sometimes the way there is with something like celiac? Um, generally, no. I have seen it happen in practice, actually. Um, but um, I, I think that by and large, most GIs accept the 
you know, very strong test characteristics of the stool antigen, the breath test. And so if it's negative, it's a true negative and you kind of move on with your life and treat. Um, I guess the time when you might see this is if a patient gets a stool antigen, let's say it's negative, symptoms persist despite treatment. And so then you're thinking, okay, should I be doing an upper endoscopy to investigate other things? If that's the case and you have them in the you know the GI lab and you're scoping, then at most instances, you probably would, would go ahead and check for H. pylori, or at least I would check for H. pylori and biopsy uh, you know, their stomach and see if, that, uh, if in, in fact there is infection there. And th- this is not evidence-based by any means. This is just you know, my understanding of you know, the, the test characteristics and also just that if, I'm, if I have a patient in front of me and I'm scoping, you know, typically I will biopsy for something if, if there's a symptom, if I'm looking for a specific disease. So I, I think in that sense, I would probably go ahead and check. And, and, and again, I've, I've caught it a couple times, but but really, by and large, not. So let's say our patient, Laura, um, we've tested her with uh, the stool antigen or the urea breath test, and she's now tested positive for H. pylori. So we have an, we have an answer. Um, and she's now kind of curious. She's a little disturbed that she's she looked it up on the internet and she's kind of freaked out by it. She's like, how did I get this? And she wants to know the treatment. How do you, how do you work, walk your patient through this? Yeah. So I would start by explaining H. pylori as best I could. Um, and so I, I will frequently tell my patients, you know, this is, this is the most, com- uh, most common chronic infection in the world. Um, you know, tons of patients have this infection. Um, so I wouldn't be overly scared about it. Um, I would uh, go into the fact that um, we we don't fully understand how people contract H. pylori. Um, you know, there are some purported ideas about a fecal oral transmission. Um, it's clearly more common uh, to get it if you have family members who have H. pylori. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think it requires patients to, you know, kind of do a deep dive into their home environment and try and deep clean things um, to prevent further H. pylori related issues. Um, and then I would kind of walk them through treatment and say, you know, um, this is a very treatable infection. Uh, but I almost always, uh, right when I start talking about treatment, begin harping on the fact that it's difficult to treat. Um, it requires really good adherence with, with not the easiest tolerated regimens. And um, it's super important that we treat it. And I explain why. And the, that's the risks of, you know, peptic ulcer disease and, and, uh, and gastric cancer. So I, I lay it in front of them and try and impress upon patients the severity of this because, yeah, most patients with H. pylori don't get gastric cancer, but it's one of the few things we know that can cause it. And so it's important to really, um, you know, I think, emphasize why uh, finishing your whole regimen, taking all the meds is really, really crucial. Paul, have you seen problems with treatment adherence? Yes. <laughs> yeah, because it, it feels even in the most straightforward regimen seems like there's about a bazillion pills involved. And I think it's just hard to even kind of keep track if someone's completed or not. Yeah, it there there's there's really no easy regimen, I would say, whether it's from a side effect standpoint or the sheer number of pills, the number of times a day you have to take a pill. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, but that yeah. it is what it is. Um, you know, the, the most common side effects from H. pylori treatment regimens are, are almost all GI. And so we, we, we do see this quite a bit. Um, <laughs> Ironically. So, yeah. yeah. So like, you know, nausea, abdominal pain, diarrhea, those are probably the big ones. Um, I'll frequently tell my patients, you know, and, and, or they'll just call in and, and let me know. But, um, you know, if you have nausea, I will often try and treat with ondansetron. 
Um, I had one patient respond to, I don't know if you guys have ever talked about the using the alcohol swabs for, for nausea and vomiting. Um, sure. Yeah. So sure. I, I've had a patient respond to that. I've had more patients not respond to that and then like come back and be like, why'd you give me these alcohol swabs? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, I would say on Dancitron's my go-to. And then if I, I've had a couple that have had bad diarrhea. And so once I've rolled out C. diff, I'll typically go ahead and, uh, you know, use loperamide or something like that. George, it seems like the two most common regimens are the triple therapy with clarithromycin or the quadruple therapy with bismuth. Can you talk about each of those regimens and how, like, how you might counsel the patients when you're giving them those regimens, just just so the audience knows what it's looked like? Because I think conceivably in primary care, we could diagnose these people and put them on one of the first line treatments before they even get to you. Yeah, so I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, Standard practice over the past many years has been to consider clarithromycin triple therapy as the go-to first-line regimen, and uh, that is just not the case anymore. So um, for context, since graduating fellowship, I have never prescribed clarithromycin triple therapy. Um, Clarithromycin triple therapy is clarithromycin, amoxicillin, and a PPI. Uh, you can use metronidazole instead of amoxicillin if you have a penicillin, al- a true penicillin allergy, I should say. The problem with clarithromycin triple therapy is the clarithromycin, and that is a by by no means a local United States specific problem. It is a worldwide problem. So H. pylori, you know, as you can imagine, being the most common chronic infection in the world, gets treated with antibiotics a lot, and Antibiotic resistance is a massive issue with regards to H. pylori infection. Clarithromycin resistance in particular is of utmost importance. And uh, so we have seen over the past you know, decade plus the efficacy of that triple therapy decreasing further and further, um, such that now it's, it's, it's probably far less below 80% when you look at eradication rates. Um, so I would say... Based on my understanding of the guidelines, um, the actual only first-line regimen in the United States is probably bismuth-based quadruple therapy, um, and so that's bismuth, a PPI, uh, tetracycline, and um, metronidazole. Uh, tetracycline sometimes is in short supply, so you can replace it with doxycycline. I learned that because the pharmacist said, yeah, we don't have this, so we got to use this instead. And I was like, okay. And then I went to the guidelines and they said, yeah, you can do this. So I was like, all right, cool. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, 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 but the issue with clarith- – and this is in the guidelines too. The issue with clarithromycin is that you really should only be using clarithromycin triple therapy and maybe even clarithromycin-based regimens as a whole – um, if you know what's your local, like local as in like community H. pylori antibiotic resistance rates are. And I personally have no idea what mine are. I don't know if you guys know, but I've never been given that information as far <laughs> as I can recall. Um, and so, you know, if you don't know that, I've read it's because the testing for sensitivity is just not that widely available in the United States. And that's why we don't have great data on the resistance patterns. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the standard practice in this country has been to to not worry as much about the specific, you know, antibiotic acceptabilities and to just go ahead with a pick a first line, pick a second line regimen and, you know, try and get rid of this thing. Um, so so it's it's something where, you know, I don't I don't typically use clarithromycin triple therapy. I will almost always use bismuth, bismuth based quadruple therapy as my first line regimen. Um 
I, I I think that it's definitely one of the least, just anecdotally here, one of the least like well tolerated regimens out there. Um, and that may be because of the metronidazole, maybe because of the, the tetra- tetracycline, or because it's just like so many pills that you have to take, most of which four times a day, which is like again, frankly ridiculous. But it, you know, it is what it is, and and so you just try your best. What is your second line go to regimen? So we, I, I, I want to come out of this with maybe two regimens in mind that I might go to. What would, what would be a reasonable second line for us to try? Oof, okay, so um, a little bit controversial. <laughs> um, the the most important, actually, I take that back. So I have some broad strokes I can paint before it gets kind of controversial. Okay, the most important thing for your second line regimen is that you pick a re- different regimen from the first regimen. And you try not to use similar antibiotic classes. So the biggest reason the regimens will fail patients is if is is due to antibiotic resistance. Um, and then the other reason is probably the you know adherence issue because there's just, just so many pills and it's kind of hard to tolerate them. So if I'm going to a second line, I will typically go to a levofloxacin-based regimen. This is somewhat supported by a recent paper that came out a year ago or so in one of our big journals. And this was a network meta-analysis looking at like worldwide, like all the different H. pylori treatment regimens. And in the West, the quote-unquote West, which was like kind of, you know, Western Europe and the United States, it suggested that levofloxacin and base regimens were actually the best. Uh, eradication rates around 90% or so. The problem with that study was that I think only two of the represented studies in the network meta-analysis were from the United States. So it's really not as applicable to to our population. Um, and then the other issue, of course, is that like, there's also increasing like fluoroquinolone resistance in the world and fluoroquinones have their own side effects. And and so it's, it's not necessarily the best first-line regimen, but because it has pretty good efficacy, then I will usually use that as my like second line regimen. So if, if the patient uh, continues to have H. pylori despite, you know, successful completion of the bismuth-based quadruple therapy, I'll go to levofloxacin triple therapy. And that's levofloxacin, a PPI, and amoxicillin. Part of what I read is that testing to make sure a patient truly has a penicillin allergy is something you can consider here, especially it seems like if you're getting backed up against you, the first line regimen, the quadruple therapy doesn't work, and you're going to be forced to use a penicillin agent, then you should test like in other, we've talked about this on the show for other types of infections that making sure the patient has a true penicillin allergy can really sometimes be of great service to them because you don't you you bring a lot of really great antibiotics back into play when you do that. I, yeah. So I, I th- so let's say the patient chokes down their, their 474 pill regimen, <laughs> and then they come back to see you, and you're like, do you feel better? And they're like, maybe. Um so at that point, I, I guess this is where I'm going is who who do you test for eradication? Is it everybody? And then what what does the timing look like that for that when you're actually checking to see how this um, this punitive um, course of antibiotics has, has gone? Yeah. Um, it, so the the short answer to who to test is everyone. So if you're if you have H. pylori in front of you, it needs to be treated. And it needs to be confirmed to be eradicated. And that's because, again, it's it's not easy to treat per se. Um, and you want to make sure it's gone. Um, so everyone who gets te- treated for H. pylori should have a test to confirm eradication. And that is, again, typically a you know stool-based antigen or a urea breath test. Uh, it is done four weeks after completing the regimen um, to uh, allow for, um, you know, to ensure the test is as accurate as possible. And um, if it's uh, if, if the next and the subsequent uh, confirmatory test is again positive, that's when you start going into your second and third line therapies. 
Um, so very, very important to ensure the, the organism is eradicated. I did want to put put one thing out there for the uh, to, to to Matt's point about the penicillin allergy. Uh, that's a super important point. Um, you know, as as we know, uh, medical or medication allergies are, are largely uh, incorrect uh, when you actually delve into them. Um, but amoxicillin is a really key component of a lot of H. pylori treatment regimens, and it does not appear to be afflicted by the same resistance issues as clarithromycin or levofloxacin. So you want to have that in your sort of armamentarium uh, when treating this infection. And this is more something that's coming down the pipeline, but I did read that there's um, maybe a new agent coming out um, that's not been totally, it's, it's going through the FDA process, the vonoprazin. Is that something that we're going to expect to see coming to market soon here? And hopefully it'll be affordable for people. Yeah, I, I strongly hope and suspect it will. That is a competitive uh, potassium uh, acid blocker. Uh, as you guys probably recall, the um, p- proton pump uh, in, in the uh, gastric uh, lining is uh, a potassium, uh, uh, hydrogen potassium ATPase. And so this seems to actually uh, inhibit gastric acid secretion, um, you know, superior to PPIs. Um, it's been studied uh, pretty extensively in Asia, I think specifically in Japan. And again, that same network meta-analysis I was referring to before um, strongly suggested worldwide that the venoprazam-based therapies are hands down the superior therapies when you compare them to anything else. Um, so again, it's, it's a little bit hard to extrapolate without a tried and true, you know, North American based study, but it looks promising for sure. Um, I will also just point out by the way, that a lot of the information I'm giving you guys is based on data from Asia. And that's because that's just where the data is. Um, so our, we have a significant paucity of H. pylori related, you know, studies in the United States, unfortunately, um, and so some of it has to be unfortunately extrapolated uh, and can't always be necessarily applied, but we, you know, you try your best. The other thing I read is that they're, they've tried looking into vaccine for it so far. It doesn't seem like they've had success for that, but that, that was, I think that's a really cool idea as well, just to prevent it altogether with a vaccine. Yeah, I, I, I've I've seen uh, seen studies on that. Um, it's certainly not ready for prime time, as as they say. But it, you know, I think in you know countries like China, where I believe that the the most recent study was done from China, uh, it's countries like countries like China or you know Korea or Japan. You know, you probably would hope and expect that to be you know an important intervention in a place where H. pylori is so prevalent and so potentially disastrous if you actually get it. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll see, you know, future studies looking at that. So, George, you mentioned that transmission is thought to happen primarily in childhood. So let's say you have a patient, you make the diagnosis, you treat, you confirm eradication. Are there instances where you would consider retesting or, or, you know, can you get reinfected, I guess, is the question that I'm asking. What are the circumstances where you consider going through this process all over again? Um. It's a good question. Uh, generally speaking, H. pylori is uh, once it's eradicated is gone for good. Uh, the recurrence rate is very low, something like like one or two percent or less per year. Um, and so I have tested for it again at times. If someone was previously doing well, and then um, or so let's say they had it tested, it was it was found, it was treated, they did great, and then they came back with symptoms that came back again. Then maybe I would look again for H. pylori. But by and large, I'm not doing that for a couple reasons. One again is it because it's, the recurrence rate is so low, 
And two, and this is like one of the like little secrets in GI, two is that the test and treat strategy for H. pylori to manage dyspepsia um, is not the most efficacious if you actually want to get rid of your dyspepsia. So like at one year after you eradicate H. pylori, 75 to 80% of patients will have dyspepsia again. Uh, so it's not like the H. pylori is like treatment is like the panacea for dyspepsia. Um, and so like most of those patients with, with respect to the previous, you know, thought of like throwing a PPI at patients at that point, can you confidently and ethically throw a PPI at patients? Right. Right. Yeah. I, we all wish that, that there was a panacea treatment for dyspepsia because it is certainly, I'm sure it's more the bane of your existence than it is ours in primary care, but you always feel bad for the person with chronic abdominal pain and you want to, you want to find something that helps them. I, I think that's the patient feels helpless. You feel helpless. So it'd be great if it, if it did work. But George, I, I wanted to ask you, can you give us a couple take-home points? Because we have to get let, let you get back to those toddlers. Can you give us maybe two or three favorite take-home points for this episode? Um, yes, I have three. Um, the first is that to always remember H. pylori is a carcinogen. Uh, it is a causative agent in gastric cancer. And so uh, if found, it needs to be treated and confirmed eradicated. Uh, the second point is to avoid, by and large, using H. pylori serologies for identification of the organism. You want to stick to stool antigen and the urea breath test for non-invasive uh, testing, and then, of course, endoscopy and biopsy for the invasive testing. And the last point is to, by and large, avoid clarithromycin triple therapy like the plague. Um, it's just not going to, it's not going to be a good <laughs> regimen. And so, um, pick something else, you know, bismuth based quadruple therapy or something else that will give you a higher chance of, of actually treating your patient. And with that, Paul, I think it's time to get to the outro. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There she is. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we are committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writer, producer for this episode, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, who is also our executive producer and runs our Twitter, and to Elena Gibson for helping write some of this episode. Nora Toronto is the editor of The Digest. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov does the website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Claire Morgan of Notterly edits our audio. And finally, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>